28. Got to look at my sheet here. Through 7, chapter 17, verse 13, which is just the last verse of chapter 16. Jesus speaking. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, after six days, Jesus took <clears throat> Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man also is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Well, as we've been going through this portion of Matthew's Gospel, and again, let me repeat a warning or a heeding of the passage in the, in the narrative uh, that I voiced last week. We read this, and especially if you are, come from a Christian background, this is extremely familiar to you. You've, you're aware of this narrative as part of what you've been hearing repeatedly through your lives. It's very, very easy because of that to not grasp the powerful emotional upheaval that these men are going through. As we've gone through this segment of Matthew's Gospel, the terms of their discipleship, the environment that they've been walking in, and the, the nature of Jesus' own ministry has changed, and Jesus is changing the terms of their discipleship according to their 
understanding that they had when they signed up. (laughs) And it is extremely turbulent time for them emotionally because their expectations are being changed of what it's going to look like to follow Jesus. As we've indicated earlier, they came to Jesus. John the Baptist has already been ministering. John the Baptist, he's been speaking out in the wilderness area. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He's wearing camel skins. He's where, he is living the life of a person who is, who is escaping an invading army and persecution. He's out in the wilderness just eating whatever he can find, modeling the experience Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures say before the coming of the great day of the Lord, there will be a time of invasion and terrible persecution and torment coming upon Israel. And John the Baptist's lifestyle choices are part of his message to Israel. And the people are coming from Jerusalem. They're coming from everywhere out into the wilderness to hear this man preach. And part of his message is what he's eating, what he's wearing, and where he is. And so these disciples know, according to the Hebrew Scriptures and by what John the Baptist is modeling, we've got some rugged stuff in the near future. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus has been modeling kingdom glory. He goes to John the Baptist And John the Baptist, oh, you need to be baptizing me, not the other way. No, do it. Let's do this so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. He baptizes Jesus. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. There's the voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so John the Baptist can witness to that. And then he says in the presence of his own disciples a day or two later, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's when we know from John's Gospel, that's when the Apostle John, the disciple of John the Baptist, John and Andrew, oh, well, let's follow him. And they were the two first disciples of Jesus. And that's one of the men here that is, walks onto the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. But they are expecting, here's the one with kingdom glory. We're going to the, he's partying with people. And then as Jesus keeps speaking his message, he now starts using parables because not everybody is responding. And so rather than heighten the condemnation of those who aren't going to hear the message, he speaks to them in parables so that they will have some excuse to say, well, you know, I really didn't get it when he said that thing about the soils and when he said this, you know, I really didn't get that. And so, but the people who wanted to get it would be thinking about it and the Holy Spirit would be opening their minds to it. And so parables wouldn't be a hindrance. It would be a door of entry. And the disciples are wondering, why have you changed the form of your presentation? And then he goes on and tells them, oh, by the way, fellows, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be taken captive by the leadership. I'm going to be killed. 
I'm going to be raised from the dead, and they are just, that isn't what we signed up for. And as we already saw last week, Peter took him aside when he made that declaration, and he said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You're an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Do not try to turn me away from the cross. The last place Satan wants Jesus is on the cross because that's where Satan's power will be broken. And Satan knows it. Satan can read the Hebrew Scriptures. He can read those prophecies. He knows that if Jesus goes and suffers that, that's where he will be paying sin's penalty for the entire human race. And that would completely yank all the power out of my hands. My power is that they would accompany me to the lake of fire. And so Jesus says to Peter, who is voicing this, far be it from you, Lord, get behind me, Satan. This is the fellow who just not long before said you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now he's saying, he's, Jesus is saying to him, get behind me, Satan. If at verse 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now listen, folks, that isn't what they signed up for. Yes, they knew that rugged days were ahead of them, but kingdom glory. But the ruggedness of what lay before them wasn't on the level of carrying a cross. And these men have all seen crucifixions. He is calling them to a discipleship commitment that is way beyond what their expectation was when they signed up, when they became his followers, and when he chose the twelve. They are frightened. But notice what Jesus says after he says, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. You don't want to have your investment in this world where when it passes away, so does your investment. You want to have your investment in the heaven, heavenly plan. And it will lead you to eternal kingdom reward. That's the wise investment. And the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then, as the narrative that I just read to you, this transfiguration, after six days, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, 
led them on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible, that I love about the God who discloses himself to us principally through the Bible, is that he doesn't say, here's my sales pitch, now you just believe it. No, he gives us confirming signs. He gives us reason to believe. He, he, he gives our senses something to be attached to in the very same way that our court system works. If a person is accused of a crime or if there's some issue, they bring witnesses in and they ask the witness, what did you see, what did you smell, what did you taste, what did you hear, what did you feel? We don't want your conclusions about it. We just want to know what was the experience you witnessed. What was the event you witnessed? And that is what we find from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible. We find confirming event after event after event. God doesn't say just believe me. He gives us reasons to believe. And so he brings these three men up on the mountain and he is transfigured before them. They witness through a little knot hole, so to speak, except it's overwhelming, the kingdom glory that's promised to them. Now, what had Peter just confessed a few days before? You are the Christ, you are the Son, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, they've got that fixed in their minds. They are all in agreement with Peter's confession. He's speaking on behalf of all of them when he made that confession. But you know, it's one thing to say something, to declare something, and even firmly believe it's true, and witness it, step into it. Suddenly, here they are on this mountain, and he's transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And the reason earlier I read that passage to you from Revelation chapter 1, which was an event that took place almost 60 years later with one of these same men, John, I heard behind me a voice. And then when I turned, this is what I saw. And what was the, he describes in detail what he saw. And he says, and I was flat on my face. And Jesus comes there in Revelation 1 and touches him and strengthens him so he can stay. He is so overwhelmed by what he saw and the words that he heard and what was and the power of just the voice. And here this is the Mount of Transfiguration, almost 60 years before that. The same sort of experience. They see him. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Not as white as snow, as white as the light. And I would dare say it was an overwhelming, blinding experience. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now you got to who are these guys? These are Jewish men. Other than Jesus himself, other than this promised Messiah, (coughs) of all the human beings that they would just absolutely be wowed to meet, 
from the history of Israel, Moses, the lawgiver, the one through whom God gave the law, and Elijah, that paragon of all the prophets, he's the one that told Ahab, hey pal, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And he needs his peers for three and a half years and there's no rain on Israel for three and a half years. Then he comes back and he says, sends word to Ahab, hey, you show up on Mount Carmel. We're going to have another encounter. By the way, the God that Ahab had led them to the people of Israel to worship was Baal. Baal's specialty, he is the top Canaanite god, but his specialty is he's the god of the storm. He's supposed to be able to make it rain. Hadn't been able to make it rain for three and a half years. Not doing very well. <laughs> and then, okay, we're going to meet you. Ahab, you, bring, you show up at Mount Carmel and you bring all the priests and prophets of Baal with you. They met on Mount Carmel. We're going to give Baal another chance. His other specialty, since he hasn't been able to do the rain, let's see if he can do the lightning. Let's see if he can pour fire down from heaven. And for several hours, the priests and prophets of Baal, they're stabbing themselves, they're crying out, they're trying to get everything they can to get Baal to respond. And nothing, nothing, nothing. And finally, Elijah says, okay, enough. You've had your chance. And he and his servant built the altar, put the wood on the altar, put the sacrifice on the altar, the Mediterranean is right down here. They brought barrels of water up from the Mediterranean, covered the whole, doused the whole thing with water, and then Elijah just stood back. Okay, Lord, show these people, because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelis there, show these people who the real God is, and the fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the altar, and the water... And then Elijah turns to the people, well, folks, what are you going to do? And they slaughtered the priests and prophets of Baal. And then Elijah said to Ahab, well, Elijah, you better beat feet. You better get in that chair and get home. Hurry, because you're going to get stuck in the mud. And he goes up and prays for rain, and the rain comes. And Ahab didn't move fast enough. He got stuck in the mud. So these are two got Moses and Elijah, and they're there talking with Jesus. Well, these are the, I mean, this is the Babe Ruth and the Lou Gehrig <laughs> out, of the, out of the Hebrew experience. And they're talking with Jesus. And of course, they're wowed. But they lose perspective. Oh, Jesus, let us make a tabernacle, one for each of you. And this is where the Father steps in and says, a bright cloud of light comes. This is my beloved Son. Don't you dare compare Him with Moses and Elijah. They're minor league bat boys. <laughs> this is my beloved Son. Hear Him! And of course, it's so they end up face planting in the dirt, which is totally understandable. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. 
which is precisely what he will say almost 60 years later to John as he touches. Don't be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The Jesus with whom they are walking is way above Moses. The Jesus with whom they are walking is way above Elijah. As important as those men are, as useful to God as those men have been and will be, because neither one of them is actually done, Jesus is the preeminent. Jesus should always take the preeminent position. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Now they came down from the mountain. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. I don't want people to be distracted. I am heading towards the cross. I'm headed towards Calvary. And I don't want people to be distracted from that. So you withhold this information of my glory until after the cross. After my resurrection, which he's already told them. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Which, in fact, the scribes are just quoting the prophet Malachi. As you will recall, Elijah never died. Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind accompanied by a chariot to heaven. And the prophet Malachi says that Elijah's going to come and prepare the way before the great day of the Lord. And that is repeated there in the book of Re here by our Lord Jesus. And also that he's going to come. But he, in fact, he, in a sense, he already has come. And they're like, what? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and re will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. Is he going to come again? Yes. But in a sense, there's someone who's come in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah has come already and they did not know him. That is, the people didn't recognize the role he was playing fully, but did to him whatever they wanted. And John the Baptist has already been murdered by Herod Antipas. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus is giving them information. These three men are being given this view of the transfiguration. They are seeing their Lord transfigured before them to, to fortify them. Their calling hasn't been changed. But Jesus understands that because the calling has been elevated, because the calling has been made far, 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 far more strenuous, they need more encouragement to keep moving forward. To keep moving forward. They need that encouragement. To keep moving forward. To fill them, to fortify them, to fill them with their spirit. Now, I don't know about these two. I, I, you, you remember that old movie back in the mid-30s? Knut Rockne, All-American. 
That, is the, that was the movie that Ronald Reagan, that was his career-making movie because he plays the part in there of the halfback, George Gipp. George Gipp. Am I right that? I got the right name? He was a halfback playing back in the 20s for Notre Dame. And had a fantastic career. But towards the close of his college career, he got, I've forgotten what disease he, he was in the process of dying. And Knut Rockney, his coach, went to visit him in the hospital. And he knows he's in the process of dying. And he says to Knut Rockney, he says, Coach, someday, when the boys' backs are against the wall and they have nothing left, you ask them to go out there and win one for the Gipper. And then in the movie, and this really happened, about 10 or 12 years later, they're up at, no at uh, West Point getting creamed by Army. And at halftime, they're all in the locker room, just really discouraged. And Newt Rockney comes in and tells them what had happened 10 or 12 years before. And he says to these young men, and in the movie it shows them as he's given this halftime speech to them, he says, he tells them this story that he's been keeping secret all these years. And as he's telling them, can you win one? He's asked you to win one for the Gipper. And these guys, they charged out onto the field and wiped Army out. They won one. But what, was, what did they have? Same guys who had been getting creamed in the first half now go out and completely turn the tables in the second half. What was the difference? Was there physical ability? Any no, it was that encouragement, that word of encouragement that they needed to change the reason why we're playing. We're elevating the reason why we're playing to commemorate a man whom we regard as a hero and this is our chance to honor this former player who is renowned. And that it completely changed their emotional reason for being on the field. And they went in and out there and won the game handily. What's Jesus doing here? He's giving them, he knows they are in a treacherous place. He knows they're in a treacherous place, not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually. And he is giving them incentive that promised glory. That promised glory. The Son of Man will come in his glory and reward each according to his work. He's giving them. Okay, we saw a big glimpse of that glory. And that incentivizes them to go and pick up that cross with more vigor than they ever imagined they had within them and move forward. And that's what He calls on us to do. He gives us this account 
so that we can read it and say, yeah, I want to be one of the guys in that locker room too. I am one of the reason it's here. The reason it's been recounted is so that we, the readers, will be taking the same encouragement Peter, James, and John did and move forward. Did Peter, James, and John move forward? You bet they did. And so can I for the same reason. And we come to the Lord's table incentivized. These men are sitting here They're celebrating the Passover. But the meaning of the Passover is that Jesus will, within hours, be fulfilling the reality that the Passover has been commemorating as a mere picture of what He would do for 1,400 plus years. They've been commemorating. Every year they've been doing this. He's going to be the fulfillment of it. He's going to be the fulfillment of it. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we are commemorated. We are speaking a message to one another. What is the basis, and it's an an important reminder, what is the basis of my welcome with God? It's what Jesus did for me on earth the cross that's the basis but it is also an incentive to us to move forward in walk carrying our cross and following after him and giving the message to others